And now, for the first time in color, the 38th Academy Award. And welcome back to The Snub Club. You know, with any truly great motion picture, the only thing that dates it really are the fashions of the time. The podcast with the movies that have the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. This is the night devoted to one man, Oscar. Hello! And welcome back to The Snub Club, the podcast where we talk about the movies that have the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. I'm your host, Danny Vincent, and unfortunately, I cannot think of any joke with this movie that would not involve me referencing a slur that I learned from it, so I won't be making a joke. <laughs> I feel like I'm not trying to call you out, but I feel like not saying a slur is probably the easiest thing you could have come up with. I mean, no, my, my point is I can't think of a reference point for the movie. That was the only thing. I, like, I'm not saying I was going to say a slur, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm Sarah. Permission to come aboard. Permission granted. Okay, great. I'm Caleb, and if you look really closely, you'll recognize me as the bartender from The Shining. All right. He was in this movie. Oh, I didn't know. I, I should have. Oh, oh uh, no! I should have said a Jurassic Park reference. Never mind. Oh, uh, uh, that would be good. Yeah, I was like James Hong. That's uh, or on this episode, we spared no expense. Or I could have been like, on this episode, we talk about the man behind 12 Years a Slave and Widows. All right. Anyway, we're at the 39th Academy Awards. And let me tell you, with 13 nominations, was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? It won Best Actress for Elizabeth Taylor, Best Supporting Actress for Sandy Dennis, Best Art Direction Black and White, Best Cinematography Black and White, and Best Costume Design. Black and white. That's five awards. I don't know why I didn't say the number. Normally I say the number of one. Anyway, so with eight nominations was A Man for All Seasons, which won six. It won Best Picture, Best Director for our friend Fred Zinneman, who directed The Nun Story, uh, Best Actor for Paul Schof- Schofield, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography Color, Best Costume Design Color, which I want to point out here is I feel like that if you're watching this ceremony live, uh, you probably went into it thinking Virginia Woolf was going to win because it had so many nominations, but then probably what happened was Oh shit, adapted screenplay went to this other movie that wasn't Virginia Woolf. Maybe it's in danger. And that's probably how it went down to people watch. Anyway, there was another movie with eight nominations called The Sand Pebbles. It won nothing. So we're going to talk about it. Sarah, what was The Sand Pebbles nominated for? Um, Sand Pebbles was nominated for Best Picture uh, and lost to A Man for All Seasons. Best Actor for Steve McQueen, who lost to Paul Schofield for A Man for All Seasons. Uh, best Supporting Actor for Mako, who lost to Walter Matthau for The Fortune Cookie. Best Art Direction Color for Boris Levin, Walter M. Scott, John Sturtevant, and William Kiernan. Uh, and they lost to Jack Martin Smith, Dale Hennessy, Walter M. Scott, and Stuart A. Rice for Fantastic Voyage. Uh, Levin was nominated seven more times and won for West Side Story in 1961. Scott was nominated 14 more times and won six, including, obviously, Fantastic Voyage. And Karen was nominated five more times. Best Cinematography Color for Joseph McDonald. He lost to Ted Moore for A Man for All Seasons. And he was nominated two more times. Uh, Best Film Editing for William Reynolds, who lost to Frederick Steinkamp, Henry Berman, uh, Stuart Linder, and Frank Santillo for Grand Prix. Uh, he was nominated four more times and won two. Best Original Music Score for Jerry Goldsmith, who lost to John Barry for Born Free. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith was nominated 16 more times and won for The Omen. And Best Sound for James Cochran, who lost to Franklin Milton for Grand Prix. Uh, he was nominated two more times and won for The Sound of Music. All right. Caleb, you want me to talk about the ceremony first before you go into your non-existent historic context? Now, I'll, I'll knock out historic context uh, here. This movie is set in 1920s China, uh, which was a politically turbulent time. Guy looked up to fact check a couple things about the movie, and 
while it you know it's kind of broad strokes and nothing specific, I think it mostly gets those broad strokes correct. Um, the only other thing is 1966 was also the year that uh, the Cultural Revolution began in China. I don't think anyone in America would really have been paying that much attention to it, and if they had, you know, with less than a year in, they would have too much opinion on it. But in the sense that it's like, well, the the Communist Chinese Party was ruling when this movie came out. They're the bad guys here. Eh, you know, there's there's something there. All right. Do you guys want to hear about this ceremony? Sure. I'm yes, going to tell you the scariest thing first is that the California governor at this time was at the ceremony. That's right. Ronald Reagan attended these Oscars. Boo! Alright, I got over I got over info. Um Okay. So this is the okay. So as I said earlier, implied the race was obvious between a man for all seasons and his afraid of Virginia Wolf. Interestingly enough, this is um one of the few times in history. I don't know if it's the only time, it says a rare occurrence. So this probably has happened before. Um there's five best picture nominees, only two of them get nominated for Best Director, which of course are the two I just mentioned. Man for All Seasons and His Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It's kind of crazy that it had like matchup like that. I think about how it's sometimes cool today when sometimes, you know, a movie gets in for best director that doesn't get nominated for picture when we have so many, you know, picture noms. But anyway, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was the second film in Academy history to be nominated for every category it was eligible for. Uh, the first was Cimarron. It was the first of three to date to receive acting nominations for the entire credited cast. I'm curious what the other two are, but I'm pretty sure one of them is our upcoming, and by upcoming, I mean our final on our current list of stuff club movies. I'm pretty sure the Banshees of Inishirin would qualify there too. Um, but I'm, I'm curious what the other one is, but maybe we'll see it sometime. Um, this is the second time in history two siblings were nominated in the same category. Uh, this was Vanessa Redgrave and Lynn Red, Redgrave, the Rolf nominated Best Actress. Previously occurred in 1941 for Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland. This Oscar set a record that was not tied until 2010, which is that six films won multiple Oscars in a single year, which was Man for All Seasons, Virgin Wolf, Grand Prix, Fantastic Voyage, A Man and a Woman, and Born Free. Um, 2010, it tied it, and recently in the, 20, in the pandemic year, the 2020-2021 year, seven films did that. And that is the current record for most multiple films to win an Oscar. I mean, films to win multiple Oscars. This is also the only time in the era of Best Picture where there are five nominees that every nominated film received a nomination for acting. Like every Best Picture nominee got an acting nomination. Um, And interestingly enough, all of them were in Best Actor. Uh, Now, I got a couple more. I'm going to skip some of these because some of them are not interesting to us. This is the final year we will separate black and white and color for these films. After this, there are combined categories for cinematography, art direction, and costume design. Topically, the Academy Award broadcast was almost canceled due to a strike, which was at the time the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, which was the union that was in charge of live telecasts. The dispute was settled only five, no, three hours before the ceremony was scheduled to begin. And um, Bob Hope's monologue made many references to it, um, of course, because that's what they do. You know, sometimes something happens, you have to talk about it. Like, say, if someone slaps someone on stage, it's going to be the only jokes you make for the entire ceremony the next year. Um, finally, and I think this is not actually ceremony information, but it is Oscar information. You will notice that of our Sand Pebble nominations, Robert Wise did not get a nomination for Best Director. Well, I don't know if they decided this before or after he didn't get nominated for Best Director, but they did give him the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award for this year, which I think is really interesting because he was a very active director. Because, um, spoiler alert, we will eventually cover another film of his, and of course, the previous year, his film swept The Sound of Music, of course. And of course, again, a few years prior, West Side Story did it too. So, yeah. Otherwise, this was like, I don't know why he was getting a memorial award. He's still super, super doing a lot, you know? 
He wasn't wasn't gonna die anytime soon. He didn't He lived till ninety one, so he he definitely wasn't gonna die anytime soon. Yes, he, I remember actually when he died for some reason. Maybe oh, I don't know why because he was born. Um, I think he was born by where I. Yeah, he was born in Indiana, so it was like a big deal. My dad's favorite movies, like the like one of his favorite movies. So like, I remember him dying when I was like ten. But anyway, yeah, a uh, lot of stuff going on here. There you go. Sam Pebbles. Sam Pebbles is a movie about a guy named Holman, played by. Am I skipping something? No, I was laughing because I thought we were just going to all go, Sam Pebbles! Sam Pebbles! Uh, Sam Bubbles. Not me! Couldn't be me! <laughs> oh, I just realized another joke I could have made. I could have called his book club the first chapter. Why? Who's in I book club? Because I saw book club, the next chapter, which was mid, as expected, but Candace Bergen is in both book club movies, and she's here. Oh, okay. And it really threw. Well, okay, we, let's intro the movie. I'll I'll talk about book club and actually reaching out of her in the same way. No, it, it'll make sense. Trust me. Uh, but let's intro the movie. Actually, <laughs> Steve McQueen is a uh, is a engineer in the U.S. Navy in the 1920s, and is um, gets to know a few missionaries, uh, and kind of has a little bit of a. A little bit of a quick romance with one of them and then gets sent off to be on a gunship, which the main thing about the gunship is that the Navy people just kind of sit back while some Chinese laborers do all the work. And then eventually a lot of stuff happens, but they get caught up in a revolution and they end up this uh, Chinese person played by Mako who uh, Holman Maka, yeah, who <laughs> Holman had befriended, uh, gets killed. Richard Attenborough, who's in the movie, dies, and then it ends with the uh, the boat going to rescue the missionaries. Um, and it turns out that the missionaries don't want to be rescued, and it kind of just turns into a suicide mission. Um, and that's the movie. How I, I, I think... not make a joke about Maka, too? Come on, there were so many options there. I just got. I feel terrible. I could have been like, yeah. let's play a game of five show. I could have gone for the really obvious stuff. You want to restart, Danny? Well, let's restart the whole episode. <laughs> no. okay. What do y'all think about uh, the Sam Pebbles? Judging off comments from before we recorded where we briefly talked about how it's in the movie, I feel like I'm going to be the most negative on this. But I thought the first hour was about as entertaining as I can be into one of these movies, like in, into it. Fortunately, as I don't even need to like jump ahead because Kev already said it. Once Mako died, I immediately lost all connection to everything I was watching. Uh, I completely lost interest in the film and it was a real struggle to get for the remaining two hours after that. Um, but yeah, that was that, that's basically my thought though. The first hour is interesting. Um, it obviously, you know, like any of these movies about race from the 1960s feels like it's like walking in some weird areas. But for what it was, I was enjoying it. And I was enjoying Mako's and Steve McQueen's relationship as it developed. And then, of course, Mako died. And I was like, well, okay. But there's other stuff in here, too, I like. But we can get into it when we talk about it overall. What about you guys? What do you think? Um, I thought it was kind of boring. <laughs> I thought it was okay. I mean, it has a very um all quiet on the western front tone to it. It's kind of an anti-war movie, which is weird because it's also an anti-Chinese movie. <laughs> so it doesn't really have like I guess it's kind of an individualistic movie is what I would say. You're really only supposed to root for the people. The sides are not really defined. Um thought it was kind of racist at points. <laughs> Um, yes. Uh, Definitely. I don't know. It was fine. It was not the worst movie that we've watched. Uh, not the best boat movie that we've watched. But I I did enjoy some scenes on the boat. Other scenes I thought were kind of boring. But I will say, I think that because of its tone, I appreciated that things were not really telegraphed. 
I feel like there was a lot of good writing in this. Um, that did, I feel like if this movie was made today, there would be some, maybe some over explanation, maybe too much exposition in, in parts. Um, and I feel like this movie did a pretty good job of just kind of laying it out for you to figure out. Hi. The first two hours are a bit of a slog and it, you know, it's a slow burn. And I was, I was, I wasn't necessarily negative on the movie because I do think Robert Wise is directing the hell out of this. However, I wasn't super invested and I was a little torn on some of the themes and motifs. I kind of felt like it didn't quite know what it wanted to say. And then the last hour hit and not only did I enjoy the last hour, but it kind of made me in retrospect, enjoy everything leading up to it. And while it's still, you know, it's still a movie with a lot of baggage and I wouldn't, necessarily recommend it widely i do i i left the movie enjoying it a lot more than i thought i would for the majority of the runtime okay let's 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 dig in um i do want to say one thing i don't know if it's in response to sarah but it was a thought i had that it relates to one of um sarah's most popular letterbox reviews i think it's probably i think it's your second most liked is there's a lot of parts in the first hour of this movie where I was thinking about your Green Book review, Sarah. <laughs> what specifically? Oh, you know, it just felt like, you know, one of those things where it's like this racist guy learns not to be racist while being racist. You know what I, mean? I did feel like he used that's the thing too is I felt like Candace Bergen was also not innocent because he was openly using these slurs in front of her and she never was like, hey, don't say that. It was just so bizarre. See, to me, even beyond the slurs, I'm thinking very specifically when he's tra- not the slurs are obviously terrible, but when he's training Mako and he's just mimicking how Mako says words like the entire time, I was like, this is this makes me extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> listening to this him do like the racist Chinese accent throughout the entire training I I mean Mako's also not innocent because he did that accent and Mako is Japanese of course Um, actually I wanted to look up is I don't think the other woman is uh, the other woman the other woman has a very very storied history that I actually knew about before we watched this movie Interesting. I did see that. I looked at her thing, and I did. I was like, "Ooh, this does seem interesting," but I also can't really look into it at the moment. <laughs> like when I saw it, I was like, "Ooh, okay." But, but yeah. Did anyone else feel like any other specific moments that made you feel uncomfortable besides what I meant? Because <laughs> I, I, I think, yeah, this is a iffy movie at points. I yeah, think there's one scene um, that makes me feel uncomfortable that I think is supposed to make me feel uncomfortable too, which is the auction. But, like, I think that's designed to make you uncomfortable. So I wasn't as bothered, but I also was kind of like, yeah. I think it's meant to make you uncomfortable, but I feel like it's so casual and how it does it. And I feel like what makes it uncomfortable is that, uh, I want to say John Hammond, <laughs> is, that, is that the guy is uncomfortable. It's not really that she's uncomfortable. I was just waiting for him to up the bid ridiculously and end the scene. And he just kept only going up by like $20 each time. And I kept going like, come on, man, just end this scene. Well, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't have the money I to know, do that. I understand, but it's just story tropes. You know, he, his friend can spot him. He can worry about that later. <laughs> There's a lot here that, I don't know. I wouldn't say I was necessarily uncomfortable because it was kind of what I expected from this type of movie. I did learn a couple new slurs, which I, you know, unlike Danny, I won't try to use. <laughs> I um, didn't say I was going to use them. I did. <laughs> I, I just, it, it is that weird kind of, um, I, I'm, I can't think of the right word for it, but where you have, you have the intention, like the, the intention behind um, confronting the colonialist attitudes and the racist attitudes while still having a lot of ingrained racism in you. Um, and it's one of those things that makes, adds a lot of tension to different scenes in the movie because 
I, I don't quite understand when uh, when Holman is going against racism and when he's just like, he thinks an individual act was too far. Especially because by the end of the movie, they kind of drop that. Once, once Mako dies, the, the colonialism is still there, but there's a lot less of the racism because they kind of get rid of all the Chinese characters. That was really it to me. Is like, I know I said I stopped caring after Mako, but then it was also like Richard Attenborough and his wife disappear from the movie too. And at that point, I was just like, all right, like literally anyone in this I was attached to is gone. And I understand that. Yes, I guess I think one of you made the comparison to All Quiet on the Western Front, where it's like it's supposed to be terrible. Like this is destroying them all. But I'm like, I guess, but like. I don't know. I don't really care. You know? <laughs> I just feel like what really got me at the end is like Steve McQueen is like, no, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to, I don't want to fight anymore. And then immediately, like the Chinese turn on them. And it just feels like very, like, I don't know. It just feels very villainizing. Even when, like, I feel like a big part of the movie is like, oh, the Americans are bad, but I feel like the movie really wants to spend time saying how bad the Chinese are, too. Well, and there's not necessarily a good understanding for the different... Like, they they give lip service to the different factions that were in conflict with China at the time, but I do think it falls into a thing where they all become mono, monolithic. And when the Nationalist Party takes over at one point, you kind of lose sight that they are also in, they're not only trying to kick out the Americans, but they are also at war with a whole other section of China. And I think exploring the idea of that being a monolith and maybe that, I just watched the Battle of Algiers and that's a movie where like they don't hold back on the fact that both of these sides are doing terrible stuff but your sympathies are still clearly with um, the Algerians. And I think a little bit more nuance could have gone a long way in fleshing out the politics of this movie. Mm. It, it also reminded me of Silence, too. The idea of like the, the state enacting violence to, to get rid of a colonialist. In this, in this a direct colonialist, colonialist power and silence is a colonialist ideology and then also turning that violence onto their citizens um i don't think it's as good as silence but i trying to think where to go on this i think the best plot here to me is the stuff with um, I want to get her name right. Maylee. I think to me, she's the best part of the film. Sarah looks annoyed. So well, no, I just want to say that. So her name is Maylee, but on Wikipedia, like, and I guess in the movie too, it's spelled in an anglicized way, and it really yes. annoys me. It annoys me also because, well, I guess you can't really anglicize Pohan, but it's like everyone else on here seems like they're spelled right. I find her performance super interesting and restrained. And she and Richard Attenborough are both really good in this because they share most of their scenes together. Uh, well, sorry, she sh- shares most of her scenes with him. He has a lot of other stuff going on too. I found it interesting, and the reason this popped in my head after what Caleb was saying about silence is I think there's an entire other film there about her and escaping her family and sending money back to her family because of her guilt that I would love to see someone else like actually focus on or you know like that I, th- I was like this is an interesting idea that this woman was taken in by these missionaries and then either they abandoned her or she abandoned them and i don't i, I thought it was really interesting but then the movie just kind of like shrugs it off as backstory and yeah i feel like that's an issue that i have with a lot of movies like if you look at like trial of chicago seven or um don't worry we will i know unfortunately (laughs) um or like like american animals was something that i had or like or like Dahmer. 
where it's like you have like the same like the same characters over and over and over again these white men and i feel like there's so many more stories that we could explore in the same situation that are about other characters that have other stories like especially with chicago seven that just irritates me but i don't know i i agree i feel like i mean obviously the movie was about a man in war so i'm not gonna say oh it should have been about melee but i feel like in terms of storytelling i feel like it's kind of dated i feel like we can move past these types of stories now oh definitely that's another thing that made me feel again that's where the green book vibes kind of come from too where it's like these other characters seem so much more interesting and the movie is giving them more time than i'm used to for a movie of this age but it's also like it's in the i don't want to be like it sound, I don't want to sound bad, but it's like, in a way, you giving them this much time makes it worse because I'm getting more and more mad we're not spending the whole movie on them. Whereas if they were forgettable characters that weren't even there, I'd be, you know, I wouldn't miss them because they wouldn't be there. But like, that's not like, obviously, they're such an important part of what the story is. I'm not saying cut them from the movie, but it's like, I do wish we could see Pohan's story. I wish we could see Meili's story. I find them interesting. And that's why, again, when Mako died, I was like, well, there was my guy I liked on the ship, you know. <laughs> I I don't like the Maylee plot. Um, it's it's nothing against the two actors. I think they're both doing everything they can. Although I think um, the actress playing Maylee is directed to be demure in a way where it comes off as she is not interested in Richard Attenborough's character, uh, which I think is what kind of ruined it for me. I thought is, the it feels same like. Thing. It feels like he's just kind of coming in and white knighting for her. And I don't, I, you know, it's. See, to me, I thought that was the best part of it. I'm being serious. I thought that was by far the best part of the movie. And spoil it for, I guess, what I'm going to give it uh, later on. I thought her performance was by far the best thing in this movie. Well, okay. Uh, do you want, do you want to clarify that it's not the white knighting that you think is the best part? No, I don't think it's that. I think it's interesting that I don't think she's interested. I think you're right. I think that's part of her performance. I think she's like, how is my she's being methodical and how she's going to get out of this and it's all in her performance it's not on the page it's not said to us it's just there and how she's behaving but i feel like I'm, later on her actions don't match i feel like there's a whole love story off screen that we don't see where she falls in love and because at the end she has a tragic ending and she's so upset and she's pregnant and it's like when they get married she looks like she's being held hostage and I think Frenchie, I think Frenchie is just too sympathetic of a character to really, even if that is, you know, I know you're saying that's not the intention of the film, but let's say that was not that intention matters. But even if that is how I'm going to read the film, Frenchie is too sympathetic of a character for me to really, for all the pieces to kind of connect together. Is he sympathetic? That the movie wants him to be sympathetic. Comparably, he is sympathetic to every other white man we see. Is he actually sympathetic? Eh. I think he's so. a white knight. I mean, he's a white knight, but I but like he's never interested in her for sex. I mean, he falls in love with her at first sight, but he doesn't like. It's never about him wanting to have sex with her. He would rather buy her, <laughs> rather buy her for her freedom. And then he gets kind of weird because then he's like, we're going to get married. And then it seems like she doesn't want to. But I think he's meant to be sympathetic. I think he's meant to be. I'm just saying to me, this is like what I'm saying with Maylee. Maybe you guys are probably right that the performances might be like that because this isn't, I don't think she's a professional actress, right? Maybe I'm wrong. From what I read on her Wikipedia, I have all kinds of things to say. (laughs) Um, We can get into her, her actual life soon, but let me finish. Is I think. I, like, you know, it's one of those definitely the author. I don't care what Robert Wives is trying for. I don't care. I don't care about, like, if his character is supposed to be sympathetic. I didn't find him sympathetic. I found her sympathetic because of her performance of being not interested in him. And yet she still needs him to get out. And then, yes, yeah, but eventually the, the stuff with the wedding is kind of weird. But again, at that point, I was already checked out of the movie because Mako died. So, <laughs> so. you know. What I'll say, Danny, is I agree with you that the movie you're describing would be fun to watch, or at least would be interesting to dig into. I just think that there's so much in the text that's pushing against that reading that I can't quite meet you there. 
That's fair. That's very fair. I, this is me trying to get enjoyment out of a movie I didn't like. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Which, like, it's also like we have to talk about it. We have to have yeah. a conversation about this movie. So, yeah. but you know what? We could else converse about the actual actress, Sarah. Tell us what you want to tell us about her because she is interesting. okay. Her life is wild. Okay, so I, I knew all of this before because I went on a Wikipedia rabbit hole one time, but. <laughs> So she wrote a book, allegedly, she wrote a book about a character named Emmanuel, who is a a young woman who experiences sexual awakening. And it was really, really popular, but her husband may or may not have written it. Her Wikipedia page is not even consistent. Sometimes it says that she wrote it. Sometimes it says that he wrote it. And then... It has spawned into a series of pornographic films, and she starred in the first one as Emmanuel, and it became this hugely successful franchise, and there was the Black Emmanuel, and the Emmanuel in Rio, and Emmanuel in Spain, and like all these different spinoffs. However, I don't know who actually owns the rights to it, because all of these pornographic films that they would make, usually Italian would be they would be like named a certain thing and then they would change the name to be called like Emmanuel. So so it was a very, very popular genre of pornography where a young woman experiences her sexual awakening with an older man in an exotic location. So so you could she say that she was had kind a of a relationship with Steve McQueen during this. But what really went on between them remains a mystery. I know, I saw that too. <laughs> how, how mysterious! So really, she was kind of like a godmother of pornography and this specific genre of pornography in a way, because in these, it's a whole thing. This I could go on and on about because I'm totally fascinated <laughs> by this genre of like Italian softcore pornographic films there's i mean there's like a manual in prison and a manual the reporter and it's like she's she's doing everything but it's not really like it's like you watch the movie and you're like oh i can't wait to watch a manual in this movie but it's not really her it's just what the, the movie Wise, is called robert wise overseas shooting sound of music goes to a porno theater watches this goes she's in my next movie <laughs> i don't know if that's actually what happened i think a manual came out the movie came out there's afterwards. A, there's a manual first contact. Oh, there's so much. Ooh. She had a video game, all kinds of stuff. It's very. This is why it's very interesting to me. A manual <laughs> in space. So yeah, uh, a world of desire. Having made first contact with interdimensional travelers, Emmanuel continues the ongoing mission to impart the secrets of human love and sexuality. <laughs> Oh my she's gosh. always very uh, innocent. Interstellar. <laughs> she's always very innocent, but she's also very experienced, which is exactly what you want in a woman. <laughs> Talk about her love interest briefly here, because I, I mentioned this earlier. I was like alluding to it, but Richard Attenborough and him and Candace Berg, we've hit this already, right? Kind of with um, Bruce Dern in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and Shirley MacLaine in the Children's Hour, but I do think this is the first movie we've watched where, you know, you have that weird thing, you watch an actor you always know is old, and they're young, and you just... I don't know, there were multiple moments where I was looking at Richard Amber, and all I saw was John Hammond, but it's like, this is like 30 years before that. This is crazy. I don't know. I don't know if you guys have had that experience with any of the actors I mentioned. Uh, I know, Sarah, you said you did with John Hammond. Yeah, I mean, sort of. I mean, I, I love Jurassic Park very, very much. So I was excited to see him. I feel like for me, the weird one was Candace Bergen because I feel like when she played Murphy Brown and when she's in all these 2000s era uh, rom-coms, she has a very distinct way of speaking. Like she kind of talks out of the side of her mouth and she didn't really do that in this movie, which I thought was interesting, but she does look like Candace Bergen. They need to update um, her Wikipedia page because it says that Book Club 2 is still in post-production. You should Not edit true. it. Okay, I will right now. <laughs> Hold on. Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think I've had that yet. Obviously, like, you know, obviously Richard Attenborough stands out because his most famous role is Jurassic Park. But even then, I don't know. I, 
I didn't really, I guess the closest thing I had that to was the waiter or it was the bartender from the shining, but honestly, he's not even that much younger than he is in the shining. It's just that he has a, a blue star tattooed on his neck in this. And I found that to be a bold choice. I mean, we also talked about, I guess, well, I think I might've shouted out earlier, but I want to have it on record in the actual episode is, um, um, I know I said we're doing a spreadsheet. I'm making a spreadsheet where I'll eventually quiz you guys when we get the five timers club. But for legendary actor James Hong, I must always mention when he pops up in one of these movies. Because he was here and I was like, there he is. There's James Hong playing a, a pimp, basically. <laughs> yeah, he's some sort of gangster. It's a very James Hong role in the sense that he's there. You know it's him. He doesn't do much. <laughs> His one line, he goes two hundred dollars, and that's, that's his only. Line. But he's a he's a named character, Victor Shu. Yeah, but we love James Hong. I feel like we I do. can say that for you guys. <laughs> yeah, no, great talent. I also think this is. I think this is the first time I've seen Mako in live action, which was a little weird because I kept trying to hear his voice. And I couldn't. It's just impossible I mean, with this role. <laughs> he's putting on that accent, and it's a, it's a thing. I was um, sorry. I was just looking. Maybe he also is. He I looks would. really, really young. I don't know how old he was in this, but he's also one of those actors where you really only know him when he's old. He's thirty-three in this, or probably thirty-two. This came out when he was thirty. Yeah, so still pretty young. I want to talk about the technicals uh, of the movie for a minute because I do think this is a spot where the movie really does shine, um, especially in the set design. I think this boat, and especially the wear and tear that they show on the boat over time, is really cool. But it's a it's very interested in very like almost reverently showing the engine and how it works, um, and it's it's a spot where you really do get in the head of of. Uh, our protagonist because he he really does have a love for this engine and for like the mechanics of this boat and when the movie is thematically at its best you can see like kind of the neglect for the mechanics of the boat that he's trying to push against paralleled with the system of colonialism that he is at some points questioning at some points not can we talk about the best scene in this movie? Which is when Mako comes Rocky. Comes a boxing for five minutes. That was my favorite part. Yeah. Um, there's a yeah. lot of tension with Mako's character. <laughs> and I don't, do you want me to give context for it or do you since I, don't, you I, think, I think in a way like being like yeah this movie just randomly becomes a boxing movie um for about 15 minutes because mako uh is a victim of race related crimes or by crimes i just mean like racism and um you know someone's racism on the ship um steve mcqueen responds by like you know, white knighting, as we say, for Mako. Well, well, <laughs> and, well. I'm not gonna. I'm not trying to say anything, but if you, I mean, in order to be, you need to be actively anti-racist, okay? <laughs> if you see something, say something. True. Yeah, that's true. But basically, uh, Steve McQueen like beats him up a little bit. They blame Mako for it, and the head Chinese guy on the ship is like, "Let's get rid of Mako." And Steve McQueen's like, no, I want him to fight for itself. And the captain's like, it'd be good to put the other guy in his place. If you can get them to convince them to stay Mako on the ship, that's fine. And so I thought it was going to be like, you know, like a 12 angry main situation type of thing where McQueen like really argues for his friend. Nah, Steve McQueen goes and goes, I bet you my guy could beat you up. <laughs> and they all place bets on Mako um, being able to fight. And well, and it's, it's also how Richard Attenborough gets the money. For, yes, uh, but he doesn't spend that money for quite some time, which is also really threw me. He gets the money and then they don't really use it for a while. I don't think they use it till after Mako dies. He spared no expense. But yeah, Mako gets into a fight. It, it, it becomes like this thing where it's like, it is like a, I don't want to say it's not like a Rocky movie because obviously it's not shot like a Rocky movie, but it is like 
Steve McQueen's in the corner going like, come on, you can do it. Do that one. Do that one. And like everyone else is like obviously rooting against Mako because they're all racist and they all like the the guy who is like the biggest heel in the movie. Does he even have like a part after this scene? I feel like I feel like he kind of disappears from the movie afterwards. He he tries to get Holman to turn himself over to the Chinese at that one point. Oh yeah. Um, and then I think he dies in the final battle. Yeah, but he's like the actual. He's he's the bad guy. Um, but. Yeah, it's, it, I actually thought the boxing was well shot for a movie in the 60s. Obviously, it doesn't like... 10 years later, you know, we get Rocky and Raging Bull, but like for now, I'm like, no, this was interesting. I thought this was good. And I like the uh, choreography of it. I like the ref being in there. I like the moment where like Mako like lifts him up and they like, put him down, put him down. I don't know. I thought it was good. Good scene. The, the ref was uh, not following regulations. He, uh, he was definitely favoring one of the boxers more than the other. Sorry, did you like the boxing? Um, it was okay. I mean, you could say that it was kind of like a Rocky movie. He went the distance. And after all this, he, sure he still did. died. That's true. He did die. Um, y'all want to talk about that scene? I guess. Sure. <laughs> I, it's a pretty important scene. So, um, yeah. So as the revolution is going on, there are several points where they. Uh, the sailors are in a city and then they start getting chased out by a mob. In one of these circumstances, they get all back on the ship, but Mako, who was not supposed to, or what's his character's name? Pohan? Pohan. Yeah, Pohan, who was not supposed to be off the ship, but the main main guy in charge of the Chinese uh, workers who kind of has it out for him, sent him on shore. Uh, he gets caught by the uh, by the rebels, and they string him up, and they start torturing him as a way of being like, turn over, yeah, you know, getting the getting the ship to give itself up, which they're not going to do, and it ends with Steve McQueen shooting him as a mercy killing. Yeah, I don't know. I just completely lost interest in this scene. It was like, you kidding me, guys? You gave me all that build up for this character that I thought was going to be like, I thought this was going to be the back. I uh, I hate to, I do sound like one of those like people who go online. It's like I'm so mad this movie wasn't what I thought it was going to be. But also, it's like I don't understand why we spent so much time building this up just to kill him off pretty much unceremoniously in like the scene right after the big boxing triumph. I don't think that was unceremonious. I thought this was the most ceremonious part of the movie. Okay, but even then, it's like he's gone and there's another hour and 40 minutes. He dies before even halfway of the movie's done. When he was like the heart of the entire thing, him and um, McQueen. As soon as he dies, I have no more question, uh, connection to McQueen. I don't know. It just got me mad. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, I think it's something to... It's something to question the decision. Um, I understand as like, and that's the problem, right? Is motivation for McQueen. And I understand that as motivation for McQueen, you're treating the person of color as disposable. And that's a problem. And that is why this scene, especially because it is so brutal and so drawn out. And in that, in that way, it is very tense and very effective. But at the same time, it does devalue this character. The weird thing is, is that after that, they start killing off every single person. And so it's like, it kind of just becomes part of that pattern. But because it happens first, and because it, there is a gap between that and when Richard Attenborough dies, there does seem to be kind of this weird uh, disposability. I agree. I'm sorry. I don't know how much to say about it. I just it really just frustrated me in the moment, you know? And I was like, I tried to think of a comparison point, but I feel like I already even said it. It's like one of those moments where like the entire interest of the movie, literally you could feel it like being flushed down the toilet as it happens. And it's like, see what you're going for here. But it's like, I feel like when you watch a movie in general, you find something like if it's going to be like, if it's good, even bad movies, right? Like, 
you can, can if you can connect to a relationship, that's usually what makes it worthwhile to finish. So as soon as this happened, I was like, well, well, why, why, why do I have an hour and 40 left? <laughs> you know, I was I like, that's the end like... of the movie right there. He had to kill his friend. There's nothing else. There. Like, that's the story. It kind of reminds me of the Fear Street trilogy. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Have you watched it, right? I watched them way back when they came out. I don't remember much about when them. they kill kind of one character at the end of the first one. And then they have two more oh, movies and she died this horrible death. And I was like, well, I don't even care anymore. <laughs> she was the only character I like. I feel like there's definitely an example that's like in a major blockbuster where I was like watching it. I was enjoying it. And I, oh, I know what I'm thinking of because I talked to Caleb about this before. Uh, this is like when I, not, not as bad, but like when I was watching Wakanda forever uh, and they kill off the mom, I was just so like, I immediately like, all right, well, there's my interest. There's, it's gone. <laughs> like. But I don't know. Difference um, is there. There's only thirty minutes of the movie left. There's here. It was like there's an hour and forty left in this. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, um, I do want to start talking. If y'all don't have anything else to say about I, kind of the last hour, if I can jump back to something really quick, because I just thought it was interesting, is I was looking at the page of the guy who played the guy he boxes, like the actor. And I'm interested to see he played Lieutenant Shrank in his West Side Story adaptation, which I'm like, oh, that makes sense. What um, is uh, the actor's name? Uh, let me go. Because I was looking at who Lieutenant Shrank was. I'm like, okay, it's Corey Stoll's character in the remake, which is who I thought it was. Um, the actor is named Simon Oakland. Plays a, He's also in Bullet, which means I guess he and McQueen must have become like, I don't know, friends, but McQueen must have been like, hey, come on to this one, you know? He's also in Psycho. Oh, he's a, he's, a, he's, he's the guy at the end of Psycho, actor, yeah. which I haven't seen. But I know that it's yeah. the end of Psycho. He's, right. um... <laughs> wait, you've seen Psycho? No, I haven't. We watched him feminist tour. Mm, uh, you watched it, and if you did, Sarah's saying we didn't. I don't think so. so. I believe her. I've seen but it. Also, but... even if you did, there was a day of feminist tour I missed because I was in uh, a play at the time. Oh, no, I was doing tech for a show at the time. But the missed it. It might have been that that you watched. I've never seen Psycho. It's a big black I'm, spot of mine. I, if we didn't watch the whole thing, we definitely watched the scene that he is in because we had a conversation about the doctor and the having to, having to talk about the movie basically being saying, now, don't worry, this character isn't trans. <laughs> I do remember I, that. I think I actually, that. I do actually remember that now, I think, yeah. I want to say the other stat I find on this page that I think is funny is he appeared twice on Perry Mason, both times as the murder victim. It's <laughs> pretty great. Um, I've I've never appeared on Perry Mason as the murder victim, so he's he's definitely beating me. It was also um, on Cold life. Jack the Night Stalker, which is one of my favorite titled shows ever. Okay, um, you don't like Cold Jack the Night Stalker? Is that like the, uh, oh, what's that? The one about H.G. Wells going back in time to. No, it's like, uh, actually, I just opened the page for it. I was going to compare it to this, and it says Chris Carter said, is it a big influence on the X Files? It's about people who investigate like paranormal crimes. And he played, he was the second build actor on the show, which was a newspaper editor who helped out Cole Jack with his investigations. Yeah. Um, so as the movie starts to escalate the tension in these scenes, more and more characters die. Um, Holman gets framed for the murder of May Lee and it becomes this very tense thing. And the, the captain of the boat, who's a very interesting character in my mind, um, starts to kind of see the dignity of the boat and of the men kind of decline. And after a mutiny, which he's able to put down occurs, he decides that they are going to ignore orders and go rescue the missionaries, which leads to a very, I think a very well shot battle sequence of them having to break through this barricade. And then a very interesting standoff with 
the they get to the where the missionaries are and the missionaries don't want to come they want to um they've declared themselves nationless they see like the only problems they're going to have is because of the military so they just want them to leave them alone and eventually it ends in kind of a shootout with just about everyone dying um but i think i think it is this one it's when the direction is at its strongest i think especially the battle scene is an excellent piece of filmmaking and it comes in so late in the game that if you're checked out i totally get not vibing with it um but it it was just it was it like stripped away some of the pretext and some of the themes and stuff that were kind of holding the movie back and just as a pure piece of filmmaking really struck me but then they were able to kind of bring those back and wrap them around and kind of this every single character who dies in that final scene is reflecting a different western idea of colonialism onto china you have the main missionary who's totally anti-colonialist and is full on let the chinese rule themselves you have the captain who is hoorah america we have to save these people because it is a reflection of us and our duty i'm willing i think a I think death in battle for by men is better than gain them home alive. And then you have Holman who this entire time he has been holding on to the idea of gain out of the military and living with um living with the missionary who he had the romance with. But besides that, and once that's clear that's stripped away, he just cares about himself. He is an he is about as apolitical as you can get. And I think that's what works about him when you when you see, when you see that final scene and you see that context. That's what works about him being so wishwashy on the politics of the movie and on the colonialism and racism. It's because he isn't taking he isn't looking at this from a wide view. He is only taking every interaction one step at a time. And the what makes the ending so effective is that because the colonialism is so deeply rooted, no matter what these three characters' perspective on it is, they all die. Like, there is no getting out because the sin has kind of run too deep. Maybe someday I will watch this movie again and the music box will screen it in 70mm and I'll go to it because I'll have a pass to it. Maybe I will get that ending out of it, knowing going into it that Mako's gonna die an hour and 20 minutes into it and so I'll be prepared to be annoyed but I'm glad you got that out of it even if I as you said correctly deduced was extremely checked out at that point of the movie Sarah do you have anything else you want to add um if it's not about Jurassic Park or pornography it's not Jurassic Park. It doesn't mean shit. I I will say something about Candace Bergen in this movie. I feel like she's in the book club. How do I say that? So I've heard. Um, <laughs> Meet me over here only recognizing Candace Bergen from her own book club. I feel like I don't know what it is. I feel like lately, not just with these old movies, but with like other movies. I feel like I'm really tired of these romances that are being forced in. I don't know what it is. I'm in a very happy relationship. My love life is going great. I don't care to see it. Knock it off. I don't want to see it anymore. This movie was no exception. I thought it was stupid. I thought it added nothing to the movie. I feel like they just want to get a woman into these movies. And I am tired of it. I'm tired. I'm tired of them putting women in these movies. I feel like I I saw something recently, like literally earlier today on Twitter, where someone was like, I'm tired of people adding all this sexual tension to movies. And it's like, these movies don't have them anymore. (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) But I go what you're saying too here, where this is kind of like a men on a mission movie where it's like, there are also women here. Gotta give a, a love story, so there's a reason for the, a woman actor to sign on to it. 
just this hippie Which woman. Also, it's like valid, but also it's like Candace Bergen at the time. I like was probably like, oh, cool. Like literally, she made her screen debut a couple months before this movie. So like, yeah. Oh, but she was a fashion model, so that makes sense why she got still some billing. Caleb, do you have anything else you wanted to say? No. Um, you know, surprisingly, I ended up enjoying this movie, but I do think it is deeply flawed still. Um, definitely not the the best Robert Wise movie I've seen, but um, I think his talent is still on display. Also, this was written by the dude who wrote the Nun story, and I like. I was like, man, this guy really just does like long stretches wow, of people's Fred, lives Fred where miserable things happen. Fred Zimmerman was like, nah, I'm a, I'm a, my my man for all seasons. I'm gonna beat you. Um, all right, before I ask Sarah what this was nominated for, I have to bring up this um tip that I just saw on Candace Bergen's Wikipedia page, which is the very first sentence under personal life, which is. She's a political activist who once accepted a date with Henry Kissinger. And so when I click the link to it, it cuts to a late show clip of her also going on a date with Donald Trump. So I'm very curious about like what this is about. But also she was like running with McGovern. Well, she was like campaigning for McGovern and stuff. So it's like, I wonder what this all is. Very interesting. Well, I mean, on Murphy Brown, they pretty famously like introduced a storyline where the show the sitcom was criticized but they used clips of i think it's dan dan quayle like criticizing oh, yeah. murphy brown but then on the show it was like he was criticizing murphy brown the person that's fun i like when shows do that that's good it's like a, in contact where they use bill clinton footage to be like like yeah these aliens are real <laughs> <laughs> Listen, guys, I, I know that sometimes you think you run into someone and you're like, I can fix him. You can't fix Henry Kissinger, though. So maybe got, don't date him. I do have to say, though, um, follow the next sentence is about how she participated in a prank where she and Abby Hoffman threw dollar bills on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, forcing them to shut it down for the rest of the day. So I think she was, just, yeah. I think she was probably pretty cool, <laughs> even if she yeah. could take a Henry Kissinger. <laughs> But the bins, if she just she spent the is. whole time roasting him, like maybe I can fix him, as you said. I, mean, I think it's a joke. I don't think she really wanted to do it. <laughs> it's performance art, but man, what a what a personal hell you get yourself into. All right, Sarah, what was this nominated for? Um, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Steve McQueen, Best Supporting Actor for Mako. Best Art Direction Color, Best Cinematography Color, Best Film Editing, Best Original Music Score, and Best Sound. We didn't talk about it at all because I didn't bring it up because I knew I was going to give it this. Jerry Goldsmith is a great composer. And to me, this sounds like his like later work in like Star Trek and Alien, which is crazy because this predates that by like 10 years. So I thought this was a really cool... like evolution to a closer the score is closer to what we hear today than most stuff we've heard uh, in these movies I feel like and I think it's just a good score like I let the intermission play I let the um, overture play because I thought it was really great music I'm giving it score for Jerry Goldson it was really good well I hate giving it to the same thing but I'm going to give it to score as well thanks Jerry Goldsmith yeah, I think there are, I mean, obviously, gotta love Jerry Goldsmith for his mummy score, if nothing else. Um, See, I'm thinking Mulan. But, you guys are thinking about all the stuff I'm thinking about Mulan. I'm big, I was a big he was Star prolific. Person, so. Um, I don't know. I, I'm a little torn because I do think that this was nominated for several things that it deserved. Uh, there are some shots in here. You can always just I you could give Mako an Oscar. I think there's some shots in here, especially with using the different levels of the decks on the boat that are really good. Uh, I liked the editing. I liked the set design. But I'm actually going to give it best sound, um, partially for like the battle sequences, but mostly for the engine room. I felt like there was a really good uh, sound design when it was uh, when it was paying attention to the mechanics of the boat. And I thought that was cool. I will say that only one of 
Uh, you know, Wiki has all the accolades in a row. The only thing that it has, it has two things that listed it one. Um, and one of them is best sound editing for the dialogue. So at the motion picture sound editor awards. Hmm. Um, oh, it was they also nominated for AFI film scores, which makes sense. What? I was about to say the, the sound designers know what they're talking about. All right. Add an, add a nom. Yeah, I'm going to give this best director to Robert Wise. I, I like Robert Wise. I think he was a very uh, talented filmmaker, uh, kind, of a, kind of a director for hire. But uh, yeah, like I said, I think he, I think he did a lot with uh, every aspect of the movie from besides some like weird acting choices with the, with the Asian cast. Um, I think he directed most of the cast really well. I like. I think James Hong was still good. James Hong had one line. <laughs> Anyway, that's, you, yes, that's what you, you get him for. That's you what you get him for. Yeah, he, he can nail that line. He doesn't need direction. He, just, <laughs> yeah, right. he could be really difficult well, to work with. You don't know. I mean, I, don't, I mean, maybe, but he's also he's like ninety two and he's been working pretty consistently since he began. I feel like if he was bad to work with, he wouldn't be in everything. <laughs> the blocking was really good. There are great moments of tension. All the all the technical aspects were on point. So I'm gonna give best director to to good old Robert Wise. Well, my head is saying direction. My heart is saying because I always do this. Even though he's a two-time Academy Award winner, I feel like I have to give it to Richard Attenborough because he wasn't nominated for Jurassic Park, and I feel like he deserved it. Did he ever? So wait, he never got an acting nomination, right? No. Only picture and director. Oh yeah, I know, I knew that, but I was like, crazy. He never got an acting nomination. He should if for Jurassic Park because I was gonna say the only other thing this won besides the sound editing award is it won the Golden Globe for supporting actor, which in its own way it's it's cool that the Academy wants to honor like nominate Mako over him, even though I do like Mako and I am glad he's an Oscar nominated actor. I think Richard Attenborough has a lot more to do in this. That said. I'm not giving it to Richard Attenborough. You all know who I'm giving it to. Because I already said who I'm giving it to. I'm giving it to the porn star. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving it to Marriott. Uh, I probably. Uh, I'm giving it to Emmanuel Arson. Her French, her French name. You mentioned you're in a porno that's so successful that you change your name. <laughs> that's the dream. But yeah. Uh, I think she's great. I've already said why. That's she gets supporting actors from me. Can we make Emmanuel does a podcast? <laughs> Honestly, I would love to talk about everything. I feel Emmanuel. like they're probably. I don't. I, I don't want to like curse anything. But I feel like they're probably. I, I won't search it because I don't want to search it. But I feel like there's got to be like porn analysis podcasts out there, right? The silence is speaking volumes, guys. Please give me something back. You know what it reminds me of? Sacrifice my search history for that, Danny. <laughs> oh, I, I'll do it later. I don't care. Um, you know what it reminds me of is when is when they changed Sylvester Stallone's porno to the Italian Stallion, which I have actually seen his porno. It is Correct. it is so unsexy. I mean, that's what seventies porn is. It's just it's at one point everybody's in a room and they're douching and it's just it's crazy. Well, it's like human something. They should have made something where Stallone made first contact with aliens. I don't know how much it of that is gonna have time. to get cut. <laughs> None of it. All I'm is he's still alive in the MCU and he's out in space. It's time for MCU Marvel's first porn. Oh, God. You know, my big dis- my big hope for the next Spider Man Spider Verse movie is uh, you guys remember my Johnny Johnny pitch? We need to have um YouTube Spider Man in the next one who's dating Elsa. <laughs> YouTube Spider Man needs to be in the next Spider Verse movie. Okay, it's going way too long here. Uh, <laughs> hey, Danny, what what are we watching next? All right, we're going to watch a very high-profile movie next time at the 40th Academy Awards, which has only four nominations and no wins. It's a film that had a movie made off of how they made the movie. Or maybe how the book was written about the movie. 
And that is, can I have a drum roll, please? Richard Brooks, or more known, the writer, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood is what we're watching next time. It's a classic film that I have never seen. Is this the murder mystery one? Um, not so much a mystery. So, because oh, I was gonna say I assume so because Capote. I thought he's famous because he only ever wrote in Cold Blood. Well, it's more like true crime than mystery. I would say. Ooh, okay. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Oh no, he wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. Sorry, Capote was (laughs) Capote wrote a lot. I'm pretty sure. I think in Cold Blood was his only like. I don't know. Maybe I should watch the movie they made about him so I can I, I can hear what. It, oh, you know what? I think I'm mixing him up with. Yeah, it's because in the movie Harper he's best Lee. friends of Harper Lee. Yeah, he's best. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm conflating the two because I've never seen the movie. I should see it someday because I love film Tumor Hoffman and I like the director too. But what about Toby Jones? In Cold Blood, will we watch next time? What? What about Toby Jones? Oh yeah, that was a thing that happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah. Um, in cold blood. I'm Danny Vincent. You can follow me on Letterboxd. You can also listen to my other podcast, Looking for the Ocean, Apex Hardering. I am Caleb Bunn. You can catch me at Caleb from the Real World. From there, you can find my litany of other podcasts Hot Trash Unlimited, Star Wars Therapy, and All New 52, which I do with our editor, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Sorry, Joe. Joe. Thanks. I just burped. Oh, I see Joe just logged New Moon on Letterboxd. He's having a good time. Uh, speaking of letterbox, you can find me on letterbox. Just my name, Sarah Knopf. Read your green book review. You can there. read my green book review. <laughs> you can find me on Instagram, S G K E S S G E K Y twenty nine, um, and also my upcoming podcast, Looking for Emmanuel, a pornographic journey. Um, you can find <laughs> us <laughs> the Snub Club on uh, Facebook, the Snub Club, uh, Instagram, Snub Club Podcast, and Twitter, Snub Club. Uh, all right we will see you next time with in cold blood dun dun dun